Radio, we're doing another QA episode for you guys. We're doing this before Super Bowl Sunday. So, Super Bowl Sunday is tomorrow. I don't know much about the Super Bowl, but I think the Patriots and Rams are playing. Is that correct, Steve? Yeah, uh, the Patriots are in their third straight Super Bowl. And um, if the Patriots win, that will be the Tom Brady's sixth Super Bowl win. So, he's been to a record nine Super Bowls. So, he is, uh, he is the GOAT. And uh, I'm saying that as a Dolphin fan who are their arch enemies. And I can't wait till he retires, basically, so get, to give any, someone else a chance, basically. But he is the go. He's like the LeBron James of football. So, What I think is crazy about the Super Bowl is that it's one game, right? Like with the Stanley Cup, it's the best of seven. It's nuts that it's just one game. Yeah, baseball is also same thing and basketball. But you have to remember – Football is different than those other sports. Football is um, you need a, a week to, to recover from a football game. So it's not like baseball where you can play two, two games in one day. You know what I'm saying? So it's a different, different sport. And that kind of um, foreshadows fitness too because that kind of proves that you can't just pound your body into the dirt when it comes to fitness because these are professional football players and they can't even play every day. How the hell are you going to be able to pound your body into the dirt nonstop? either so we got 10 really good questions all the questions you guys email me instagram dm me everything like that i forward to steve and then steve basically lists all the questions in one to ten so steve is gonna yeah so what do you you know uh, everyone tomorrow is either hosting or going to a super bowl party or some of us who really 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 love love the game prefer to just watch it at home on our own it's a long game um you have the pre-game show you have the the, the game, you have about two minutes of action, three minutes of commercials, two minutes of action, three minutes of commercials, halftime show, which is absurdly long, and then a post-game show. So it's going to be like six or seven hours, okay, in front of the TV. So it's a long day. Um, people love to snack during the game. You know, do you have to basically eat shit during the game? No, the answer is no. There are some wonderful recipes, and I'm going to share a couple with you. Um, Trevor, can you, you want to go first and give us a, re- a recipe for the game? So this is a recipe I really like to make on a regular basis. At most Super Bowl parties, they're going to serve some sort of chicken finger, chicken nugget, or something like that. So you can make them yourself very easily. Um, you could do white fish, so you could use something like halibut, or you could also use chicken breast, turkey breast, or whatever. Instead of using breadcrumbs, which are crap, you know, it's white flour full of gluten, use oatmeal. So you can either blend the oatmeal up into a flour, or I just actually use just the oatmeal. I just use quick oatmeal. You take your chicken breast, salt and pepper it, roll it in the oatmeal, and then bake it in the oven. So it's going to be no fat because it's not deep fried or anything like that. You're going to get quality carbs. You can get oatmeal instead of breadcrumbs and crap. And then you're going to be getting an actually good quality chicken breast or fish fillet or whatever you want to use instead of some genetically modified chicken pulp stuff that they use for chicken nuggets or whatever it's have you ever looked at the chicken sludge that they use for chicken nuggets it's pretty disgusting yeah you definitely don't want to you know go pick it up from from a restaurant i'll give you another chicken recipe chicken wings a lot of people say oh you can't have wings they're not healthy well if you make them yourself versus getting them from the store it's a huge huge difference so this is the recipe you're gonna have Um, This would be for two pounds of chicken wings. You're going to get two organic, hormone-free chicken wings. You're going to use a little under a tablespoon of Himalayan salt. You're going to need a teaspoon of fresh ground pepper. You're going to need a tablespoon of baking powder. And you're going to need a a teaspoon of smoked smoked paprika. Then you're going to use organic coconut oil. You're going to put it in the pan. Let it warm up. Then you're gonna get a a bag, put the chicken in the bag, mix up those seasonings that I told you. Mix them up, they're all healthy, they're not gonna upset your stomach. Mix it up really good. Then you're gonna put on medium, you're gonna put the chicken in the pan, covered, 
cook it for 12 to 15 minutes, then flip them over and cook to, for another 12 to 15 minutes on the pan. You get a nice, healthy, organic um, meal, and it's not going to, you, you're going to eat it, and you're going to be like, wow, I feel fine after. And then you can dip it in freshly made guacamole. If you Google guacamole evolutionary.org, you'll, you'll see a recipe that I put together, and that will be something you can dip it in versus getting ranch dressing. So this is a completely healthy meal. You won't feel like shit and your guests will really enjoy it. You can make as much as you want. That recipe that I gave you is for two pounds. So if you want to make six pounds, you would just get three times as much of the spices and put them together. The thing you have to be careful with the chicken wings is actually the wings themselves. It's the dressing. People don't think about that. They like they'll go on my fitness pal or whatever, and they'll look up chicken wings and they'll be like, Oh, okay. I'm having 300 calories worth of chicken wings. They don't realize they're also having 300 calories worth of dressing, especially if you're using store-bought ranch dressing. The first ingredient is probably going to be like soybean oil. It's going to be full of high fructose corn syrup. So I really like that recipe, Steve. That was a good idea. Yeah, you got to make this stuff at home, guys. Don't, don't depend on restaurants to make healthy. The restaurants are trying to make money. They're putting preservatives in the food. They want it to taste really, really good. And then when you leave the restaurant, you feel like shit because it basically – just upsets your stomach and it's horrible for you. So we have a lot more recipes that we'll share with you guys in a, in a future episode. But the next question is getting testosterone levels checked. What is normal? Um, and this is a topic, it's a very broad topic, but it's one that, that needs to be discussed. So uh, Trevor, you kind of want to go over really quick your history with this? I'll let you talk about what is normal. What I'm going to talk about is what to actually get tested. So there's two types of testosterone in your blood work. You have free testosterone and you have total testosterone. Now, a lot of medical doctors will only test total testosterone. The problem with total testosterone is some of that testosterone might be aromatizing into estrogen or some of it might be bound to sex hormone binding globulin. So when you're talking to your doctor and saying, hey, I wanna get my testosterone levels checked, make sure you get total testosterone and free testosterone checked because free testosterone is the amount of actually active testosterone. So free testosterone is the most important, but you want to get both of them checked because if you have a healthy total to free testosterone ratio, that means everything's good. Now, if you have a good total testosterone, but a low free testosterone, you might be having an issue with estrogen. A lot of that testosterone might be aromatizing to estrogen. You might have high sex hormone binding globulin. So make sure to get both of those values checked, total and free testosterone. So usually free testosterone is going to be a percentage of total testosterone. Well, not usually it is. So really, I've seen rare cases where someone might have high levels or low levels of one and normal levels of the other. But for the most part, if you have high levels of one, you're going to have high levels of, if you have low levels of one, you're going to have low levels of the other. So that's the basic, basic part of it. You're basically the total testosterone levels, what's considered normal is, you know, we don't really know. The range is huge for, for a male. Anywhere from the high 200s to 1,000 nanograms by deciliter. So in different countries, you may use different, you know, numbers for that, but that's, you can always convert it, whatever. But that's what's considered normal. And that, you know, honestly, if you're a, a young guy and you're in your mid-20s and your testosterone levels are only 300, then something's wrong. You have, you have lower testosterone levels than you should for your age. So, you know, this is one of those things where a lot of people don't want to hear the truth on this, but not everybody is born to have sky high testosterone levels. Not everybody is, is born to bang a thousand women. Not everybody is born to be, you know, some gigantic bodybuilder, powerlifter. You know, we all have different genetics. And maybe having testosterone levels of 350 or 400 as a 25-year-old or 30-year-old is what is normal for you. So the mistake that we see, and this is a huge growing trend, is people run to the doctor when they have testosterone levels that they don't like, and the doctor will put them on TRT for life. And, and that's not necessary because you know, you're not going to fix life's ills just by getting on TRT. A lot of times, you know, poor libido, poor energy and all that stuff. It's, it's not testosterone related. So what happens is you'll go on TRT and then now you need to take an AI because you're putting too much testosterone in your body than what should be in your body. So my advice, like anyone who's young, 
don't go and start tinkering with your hormones. There's no reason for if you're under 25 to get your testosterone levels checked, unless you had some sort of medical emergency, you had some type of cancer or tumor or something that would be causing this deficiency. Because if you start checking that number when you're 20, 21, 22, you're going to just stress yourself out for nothing. You know, so there's no reason, even if you had quote unquote low levels, that doesn't mean anything. Just wait till you get older, then you can start tinkering with your hormones. Because if you start tinkering with them when you're young, you're going to fuck yourself up for life. And that, that doesn't make any sense. So it's really hard for me to explain this. And probably Trevor, you're listening to this and you're like, shaking your head. No, I don't think this is right. But once you get older, you'll start understanding exactly what I'm talking about. Because I didn't check my testosterone levels until I was 30. You know, so I could have had low testosterone levels throughout my 20s. What does it matter? It, it wouldn't have affected how my 20s was. So everyone is just too obsessed over getting their levels checked. And I think that it's backfiring on so many people. So on Friday, we have medical doctor, Dr. Ralph Espedito coming on. We're going to do an entire episode on testosterone. So make sure to look out for that episode. We're going to be recording on Friday. So that'll be up on iTunes Saturday or Sunday. I agree and I disagree with you, Steve. I think the more information, the better. So I think getting blood work done regularly, at least once per year, and then keeping those records is very important because then you can kind of see how things are changing. But I agree with you. Testosterone is one hormone in the body. If someone is struggling with low energy, they're so quick. Oh, what's my testosterone? What's my testosterone? That could be a thyroid issue. That could be a vitamin B12 deficiency. That could be a vitamin D deficiency. That could be, there's just so many things. Like everyone, like, like, I don't know what it is about testosterone, but you go to your doctor, you get blood work done. The first question any guy asks is, what's my testosterone? What's my testosterone? No one asks, what's my B12? What's my vitamin D? What was my T3 levels? Those are just as important questions. So as men were obsessed with testosterone, yes, testosterone is important, but testosterone is just one hormone in the body. So I agree with what Steve said. Um, I still think it's important to be getting blood work done on a regular basis, keeping your records so you can just see how things are changing. But if your testosterone is, let's say, 400 or let's say it's 500 and you're a 20-year-old guy and you're worried like, hey, my testosterone should be 800, it's not going to make any real world difference in your physique. And then testosterone, that's a highly variable hormone. That goes up and down every day. So even though your testosterone was 500 that day, tomorrow it might be 700 because it varies based on your sleep, based on what you ate, based on how much you exercise. So yeah, I agree with you. Steve, you want to do the next well, let me just say this, like the difference between us is I didn't use steroids till I was 30. You used steroids as a teenager. So if you're going to use steroids at a young age, and yes, you need to run blood blood. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying for a normal male who lives a normal life, who isn't going to bodybuilding stuff, there's no reason to even worry about getting your testosterone checks. There are other things. I would be getting an STD check any day over at that age. When you're in college, there's a lot of STDs getting spread around. You'd be surprised and colleges, like people sleeping with each other and stuff. Women are cheating on you. And so that's something more important to get than, than, than a testosterone test. So, I mean, that's something like, I'm just saying like, if you're like, oh my God, my energy is low, my libido is low, what's wrong with me, I can't get it up, whatever. There's other factors affecting you. So just getting your testosterone levels checked and driving yourself crazy can, can really backfire. But that's, that, yeah, that's a topic that we see differently because of our history. So that's an interesting one we can uh, dive into later. The next one is, do I really need a protein powder? And this can kind of apply to other supplements as well that are pushed in the supplement industry. So, so my thought on supplements is supplements are just that, right? They should be the supplement to a good diet. So do you need a fish oil? No, you could just eat more wild caught fatty fish. Do you need a protein powder? No, you could just eat more high protein foods. I do like a protein powder. I think a protein powder is really good for convenience because most people do live busy lifestyles. So let's say you're working out at lunch, you got a meeting right after lunch, you're not going to be able to sit down and eat a meal. You know, I think a protein powder would be a great option there, but that's only because you can't eat solid food. So I don't think you should rely on protein powder. I don't think there's anything magic about protein powder. Protein powder is going to make your arms five inch bigger or anything like that. I actually would argue whole food is better, but I think having a protein powder, a good quality protein powder on hand, for emergencies, and I guess emergency wouldn't be the right word, because it's not like you're going to die if you don't eat after your workout, but having that for when your lifestyle doesn't allow you to eat a solid food meal, I think that would be a good option, but it's not necessary by any means, no. 
What are your thoughts, Steve? I think that powders, well, I know that powders are not, your body knows the difference between a powder and real food. So, you know, and people don't understand that because you look at the label and you say, okay, this has this much protein. You look at the macros, okay? But remember the process, this is a processed food that you're putting in your body. It went through a processing stage. And ironically, we always talk about how whey isolate is so much better, blah, blah, blah. But we just had a podcast talking about how fat gets a bad rap. So if that's true, then whey concentrate would actually be better than whey isolate because whey isolate has less fat. I'm just saying, I, I, I'm just throwing stuff out there, but like, think about it, like how silly this argument is about, I have to work out, wow, I have to go to get a protein shake after my workout. And um, the bottom line is a supplement company spend billions of dollars convincing you that you need to take a protein shake because that's what they sell and it's legal. It's perfectly legal. The government will never ban protein shakes. They'll never ban protein powder because it comes from dairy. And the dairy farmers need all the help they can get because people are drinking less milk. So it's a big, it's all about economics, all about money. Um, it's the same thing with like pre-workout supplements, caffeine. Caffeine will never get banned. If they ban caffeine, Starbucks and all these Dunkin' Donuts and stuff, they'd go out of business because everyone has to go have that. You'd have thousands, tens of thousands of employees with no jobs. So it's an economic thing, guys. So the bottom line is you don't need a pre-workout. You don't need a protein powder to build muscle, to get lean and all that stuff. I've, I've had like maybe two shakes in my life, two protein powder shakes in my life. That's it. I mean, it's just like, it's completely not necessary. You're not going to die if you don't have a protein powder. And um, just if you're one of those people that drinks a protein powder every day, just try not doing it for like a month and see how much different you feel. You, you may notice, wow, I feel so much better without it. So I think it's counterproductive. I don't recommend my clients mess with protein powders. Um, and, you know, because it's, it's just a processed food. So I'd be a hypocrite if I told you to consume a processed food. So, I mean, that's my opinion. Steve, do you consume a green stream? Yes, which, which I, I do. I do. Yep. And it's processed. But it's not something I take to replace a vegetable, like my vegetables. I take it because it's something I can put in my drink and drink and it doesn't upset my stomach. That's the only reason I drink that. But in no way is it even close to having real vegetables. Absolutely not. So, Did you yeah. not think read Candace Food Guide this week? Uh, say that again? They read Candace Food Guide this week. Did you know that? No, I did not. Tell us about that. So the, the main, so the main thing is that now it's just a photo. So the nice thing about a photo is it's qualitative, right? So a kid can look at that. It's very easy to interpret and they got rid of the dairy section. So there's no dairy section anymore. So we had a meeting, all of the researchers um, in the nutrition faculty and a lot of the dietitians were flipping out that there's no dairy section, but I am actually for it. Um, so many people are going plant-based now that I think Canada's food guide removed the dairy section just to make it a little bit more appeasable to everyone. And I don't think dairy is necessary. I mean, I promise you, your dick's not going to fall off if you don't drink three servings of dairy per day. So yeah, it was very, very interesting. I'm surprised they did that because there is a lot of dairy in Canada, but that just goes to show you that you don't need a protein supplement, especially a dairy-based protein supplement, because Canada's food guide actually completely got rid of the dairy section. I think your politics in Canada too are more pro um, urban. Like, so the, you know, Ontario, Quebec and in, in British Columbia and stuff, the non farming provinces have political power now. And that, that probably led to that because the United States um, are the way our, our politics is set up. It's very heavily t tilted toward rural states versus um, say, I'll give you an example, California, is in New York have huge populations, but they only have two U.S. senators each. But North Dakota and South Dakota have like 10 people living there and they have two senators each. So that's the way our, our, our politics are set up. So that will, that will never happen in the United States anytime soon. It's, it, the farmers would have so much political power in the United States. So, but that's, that's good. I'm glad that happened in Canada though. 
So yeah, the, the, the new Candace food guide, if I don't think I could put the, I don't think I can put a photo in the show notes. So if anyone is interested, send me a DM on Instagram and I'll send you a copy of the photo. So it's basically a plate, half of the plate is fruits and vegetables. A quarter of the plate is protein foods and a quarter of the plate is whole grains. So it's basically a picture of a plate. It says, choose plenty of fruits and vegetables, choose protein, protein rich foods, choose whole grains. And there's a glass of water and it says, make water your drink of choice. So it's a very, very simple photo. Like, I mean, literally a five-year-old could look at it and understand it. And then there is more information. So like, that's the, the Candace food guide. And then there is um, appendices, which talk more about, you know, the hierarchy of whole grains and things like that. But I think it's really good. I mean, I think for the average person, making half your plate fruits and vegetables, a quarter of your plate protein, and a quarter of your plate um, healthy starches is great. And then making water your drink of choice. I think that was really, really important to take home because a lot of people don't quantify how many calories they drink. Because let's say you're drinking apple juice with your meal, you're adding 250 calories. You're drinking a cup of milk with your meal, you're adding you know, 200 calories. So I think it was a really, really good change. Um, I'll, send you, I'll send you a copy of it uh, after the podcast, Steve, and you can let me know what your thoughts are. Next question kind of ties into this. Do I need to carb up before I work out. So workout could mean a lot of things. So I'll let you talk about this if you want first, Trevor. Okay, so there's a big misconception that what you eat is immediate energy. So when you consume carbs, any carb that isn't needed at that particular second is gonna get stored in your muscles as glycogen. So basically the carbs you ate yesterday are fueling your workout today. Now, if you're gonna do a really long, high volume workout, I think having a small amount of carbs before your workout would be good to kind of top off your glycogen levels. But for most people listening to this podcast, most people doing you know, a 45, 60 minute weight training session, you're really not burning that much glycogen. Um, if you look at weight training, most of it's anaerobic. So you're really not burning that much glycogen. What burns glycogen is high endurance training. So I'm talking like sprinting, I'm talking like a spin class, I'm talking, CrossFit, things like that. So if you're the typical bodybuilder, you really don't need to eat carbs before your workout. If you want to have a small amount of carbs to keep your blood sugar levels stable, that's fine. But that whole fueling your workout pre-workout, that doesn't really understand the physiology of how the human body works. Because when you eat carbs, they're stored in your muscles as glycogen. And that's why, you know, athletes do carb loading and things like that, where they'll eat a lot of carbs days before the race. So do you need carbs before your workout? No, no, you don't. If you're like a marathon runner or something like that, where you're going to be burning through all your glycogen levels, then consuming carbs before your workout might have some merit. But for the average person listening to this podcast, no. And in fact, I think a lot of people feel better not consuming carbs before their workout because that can cause a blood sugar spike and then drop. So I know Steve, for example, you like to work out fasted or you like to consume just fat before your workout. That's something I'll do too, is that if before my workout, I want to consume some calories I'll have something like MCT oil or something like that. Something that's going to provide calories, but it's not going to have carbs. And I notice that my mental acuity is much better during the workout. What, what are your thoughts on this topic, Steve? Because most people are thinking. I'm, get- actually, I'm actually shocked that, that that was your answer because I wouldn't think that would be your answer. But um, see, the thing is, like, I have experience as an endurance athlete. I have experience as a powerlifter. I have experience, you know, as a gym rat. So I have experience across the board with this. So let's, let's go back to endurance running. Um, runners who are running long distance, 5Ks, 10Ks, half marathons, they do not consume food before their run. So anyone who wants to argue what Trevor just said, you're wrong, all right? Because if you consume food, carbs, whatever, before your run, guess what's going to happen? Your body is going to spit that food right out. You're going to be nauseous. You're going to be throwing up. So... Um, do you do not want to have anything in your stomach before any type of high intensity workout, whether it be if you do high, you know, high intensity training, sprinting, interval training, whatever you want to call it. No, as far as weight training in the gym, you don't need carbs for that because you're simply not even coming close to burning through your glycogen as you would if you run a 10 K or half marathon. It's a joke that anyone would think that you need carbs before that. What is actually happening in that situation, and a lot of you are listening to this be like, wow, Steve and Trevor, your guys are nuts. I can't work out without carbs. What's happening is you're very insulin resistant 
you have low blood sugar, and I bet you that you're on the verge of getting type 2 diabetes if, if you keep this shit up. So you're, you're so used to eating carbs throughout the day that you've become extremely insulin resistant, borderline type 2 diabetes. So I would recommend definitely getting your, your, your levels checked, your blood sugar levels checked. And, you know, you really need to be careful on that because type 2 diabetes is a huge epidemic. So if you find yourself not able to get through a workout without eating carbs before, that's the problem. You have low blood sugar. So um, that's not normal. And that's something you really have to work on improving on. But like the, at first, it'll probably be hard to do that. But I guarantee you after three, four weeks of eat, not eating before a workout, you'll eventually feel a lot better and you won't feel the need to be eating carbs like every two hours. Basically, they call it like hypoglycemic. So we all know people like that. We hang out with them. They're like, oh my God, I got to eat something. I got to eat something. I'm shaky. I'm shaky. I'm like, it's like, wow, what is wrong with you? Well, that they, they are actually dangerously close to becoming, becoming a type 2 diabetic. If they ran their blood sugar, it would be in the high 90s, maybe even in the, in the low 100s. So we don't want you to get type 2 diabetes, guys. So that's actually a red flag. But let's say you're a power lifter. Um, what I used to do was I had to have to make weight. I would basically not eat anything leading up to the meat. Then we weigh in and then I'd have like a candy bar or something because I would really have to make up those glycogen stores. In that situation, it makes sense to have some carbs beforehand, a banana, maybe um, a, a protein bar, something like that to get some quick carbs in after you just basically um, had to make weight. But that's a completely different topic for a normal average Joe listening to this. You do not have to carb up before your workout. And then if you're a runner, I recommend about two or three hours before your run, having some fruit, maybe some melon, and then just hydrating. And that will be all you want to do. You do not want to eat within two hours of your run. You will get sick. I'm going to say one more thing about blood sugar, Steve, because you brought up a really good point. What I recommend everyone listening to this podcast do is go to Walmart, go to some drugstore or whatever, buy yourself a blood glucose monitor. Chances are your insurance will actually cover it because most insurance, if you are a type two diabetic, will provide it. So even if, it, even if your insurance won't cover it, it's about a hundred bucks. Test your fasting blood glucose once per week. If your number is above a hundred, that is a red, red flag. That is a sign that basically you are about to turn type two diabetic. I see a lot of bodybuilders who have high fasting blood glucose. That's from just eating way too many carbs. It's from stress. It's from abusing HGH. It's from abusing stimulants. So one of the best tests you can do is just test your fasting blood glucose. All you have to do is prick your finger, you get a little bit of blood, you stick it in the test, get that test. Do it maybe once a week. It's a very, very good indicator to keep an eye on. People are always weighing them, their body weight, their weight, they're taking photos, they're taking selfies, things like that. This is going to take 30 seconds, and I would say it's a better indicator than all those other things I just mentioned. Yeah, you missed out meal frequency, too, on that list of things that bodybuilders are doing that are making them type 2 diabetic. Well, it's um, not actually the meal frequency. It's eating carbs too frequently. Like, you could eat frequently, but you just wouldn't want to eat things that raise insulin. But, yeah. It, yeah, I, but every food raises insulin, unless it's, like, something like melon or something that has basically just fiber and water. But I'm just saying, like – eating like a turkey breast still raises insulin. You see what I'm saying? So it's, it's contributing, but yeah, if you eat the more junkier, the food you eat, the more, the more issue it's going to become. Well, insulin, insulin is being released 24 hours per day. I mean, even when you sleep, even if you haven't eaten, even if you've done a five day water fast, you still have insulin present because without insulin, you'd be yeah. dead. But it's like, it's like a dimmer switch, right? It's like certain foods will raise insulin more, certain foods would raise insulin less. So if you're eating a ketogenic friendly meal, yes, insulin will raise, but the increase will be pretty much negligible. But we're, we're nitpicking. It's yeah, yeah. I think it's all about training your body. Again, if you are so used to eating carbs beforehand and you have low blood sugar and you train your body for years to train like that, you will become more insulin resistant because you're training your body to be insulin resistant. But once. if you train fasted, just start training fasted once or twice a week, get used to it. And that's, and then you will actually train yourself to be more insulin sensitive that way. You know, it'll, it'll make it easier to lose weight and everything. One, I'll say one more thing and you can do the next topic, Steve, is that the simplest test 
if you don't want to get all these quantitative numbers and buy yourself a glucose monitor, is try intermittent fasting. If you can't go 20 hours without eating, that is a red flag. You have very poor muscle insulin resistance. Now, I don't practice intermittent fasting very often because for me, it's very hard to get my caloric intake. I'm a young guy with a healthy metabolism, but probably about once every 10 days, I will intermittent fast or I will do a 24-hour fast just to give my digestive system a break. And I feel perfect. I actually feel more energetic on the days I'm fasting because there's no swings in blood sugar levels. My body's not digesting anything. If you can't go to 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. without eating something, without feeling nauseous, without getting hypoglycemic, that is a red flag that you have really, really poor muscle insulin. We're actually going to talk about this this exact topic, topic seven. So I don't know, Trevor, if you um, remember that, but um, you sent me that question. So you're probably uh, answering that question too soon. But yeah, we're going to touch on this later in the podcast, guys. If you guys want to fast forward to topic seven. So the next one, before we get to that, bored with my workouts, need fresh ideas. Uh, really quick, Trevor, off the top of your head, um, I'm sure at some point you've kind of hit a wall with your training. What did you do to get yourself out of that funk? So as humans, we are creatures of habit. If you go, I love going to the university and there's not assigned seats, but people sit in the same seat. They eat the same lunch. They have the same drink from Starbucks every single day. So chances are, as a creature of habit, you're going to work out in a very similar way every single day. Chances are, if you like to start your leg workout with squats, you're going to start your leg workout with squats every single time. So if I was ever in a funk, I would hire a coach. And what that coach is going to do is they're not going to give me some magic workout program that's, you know, some top secret muscle confusion thing that, you know, what it's basically going to do is it's going to force me out of my comfort zone and force me to try something different. So shameless plug, I got my size and strength ebook. It's 10 bucks on my website. If you guys want to buy that, it's going to give you a completely new workout to, to follow. Or you could hire a coach. Most coaches will charge about 100 to 200 bucks for a workout program. That's a great way to get a 12, 12-week program that's going to be completely different. That, or you could start working with a buddy because you're going to work out the way your buddy wants. I would reach out to someone to give you something different because the best workout program is the workout program you're not currently following. That whole muscle confusion thing, that's kind of bullshit. That's basically a clickbait term. But it is true your body gets used to what it does regularly. So if you've been following the same workout, for the, you know, the last couple months, it's time to mix it up. What are your thoughts, Steve? I hate how gyms, they lock you into these contracts and it's like, you know, you, and then you try to cancel it and they make you jump through hoops and then they say, Oh, you didn't cancel it on time. So we're going to still bill your credit card for next month. They always do that shit. So, but I mean, so it's kind of hard to do this, but a lot of times just changing your gym in a gym with different equipment. A lot of gyms are always bringing in new stuff. And another gym may have something that this other gym doesn't have. There's different people there. The, even the front desk, you know, they have a different attitude. All that can really kind of kickstart your motivation and get you going. Um, another way is logging, logging your workouts. Come on our forum, start a log. And that will kind of keep you motivated to go. Maybe put up pictures every week of your progress. And that will give you something to push for. So, I mean, those are options. Some Maybe buying some new sneakers, maybe buying some new gym attire. Those are good options as well. As far as workouts themselves, if you're doing a split routine, change up your split routine. If you're doing a three-day split, switch it to a two- or four-day split or a five-day split. Or maybe do circuit training for the next month where you go in and you work two sets of each muscle group, but you do it at a very low intensity, like at 40% or something. And then that way we can go back to your regular split. But if you do the same split routine year in and year out over time, you're just going to get bored with it. And you know, it's just in your head, you're just going to be, it's, it's not going to be fun anymore. So you want to keep weight training fun. Weight training doesn't have to be something that's boring you know, and these are, you know, there's so many different ways. Music is another thing. I love music. You can look on Sirius uh, radio, uh, pull up some good stations that you like, listen to it for the afternoon. And then when you see a song you like, write that down. Maybe there's a song from the eighties or nineties that you remember when you were younger, write that down, put it in your little thing and take it to the gym and listen to it. And that'll kind of get you motivated to go. So there's all kinds of different ways to do it. I'll say one more thing and then Steve, you can list the next topic. 
I think a great resource is switching up your gym. So I'm very lucky that I have my regular gym and I have the university gym. I get access to the university gym for free for being a graduate student. I'll train at one gym for two months and I'll train at the other gym for two months. And just being in a different atmosphere, different equipment, you're surrounded by different people, it is gonna, it's gonna take you out of your comfort zone and it's almost gonna be like a vacation. So if you don't have that liberty, um, you could get a one week pass at a different gym. A lot of gyms will do a trial month for like 30 to 40 bucks. If you check on Groupon, a lot of gyms will have like a two month for $80 New Year's promo or something like that. So that's what I would do is I would try to switch up your gyms or if you're at a franchise gym, go to a different location because at that different location, chances are there's going to be different equipment. There's going to be different people. It's going to be a different atmosphere. And then it's not going to be like living Groundhog Day every single day because you're going to be like, hey, where's the leg press? Where's the leg extension? Where's the calf raise? Like you're going to be out of your comfort zone. You're going to be thinking and you're going to be stimulating a different part of your brain. Steve, you want to do the next question? Next one ties into this too. He's a new, he's completely new. He just signed up for a gym membership. And he wants to know what should he buy? Clothes, shoes, gym equipment to take to the gym with him. So I'll, I'll tell you what's in my gym bag. I have good quality shoes. And I say good quality shoes. That's very, very important, especially if you're going to be squatting. You want something that's flat-footed. You want something with good ankle support. So don't be using the running shoes that you bought 10 years ago. Get good quality footwear. I can't stress that enough. Most people who have knee pain, most people who have ankle pain, the problem is their shoes. It has nothing to do with their form. It has nothing to do with their exercise. Be, be, be specific on that, Trevor. Like, what are you saying? You're saying go to the shoe store, go to Nike. Where, where are you saying to go? Go to the shoe store. Um, specifically, go to, if you're a runner, go to a running, running store. If you're going to get something for training go to like a sport check or something like that don't go to the kid who you can tell is some high school kid who doesn't give a shit go to the old guy who you can tell has been working there for 20 years and ask for his input ask for him to properly size you the shoe just like they just like there's some statistics that like 70 percent of women are wearing the wrong bra something like 65 percent of people are wearing the wrong shoe if your shoe's too big it's going to cause pressure on your ankle if your shoe's too small it's going to cause pressure on your ankle so like Definitely make sure your shoes are properly fitted. Don't cheap out. Don't buy the cheapest thing. Um, so shoes are very important. I have gym chalk. If you're a new lifter, that might not be that important. But if you're lifting heavy, especially if you're doing like overhead barbell presses, gym chalk is very important for safety. Um, I do have a weight belt. I don't rely on a weight belt. I think it's good to have if you're going to try to do like a max lift or something like that. You don't want to tweak out your back. I think a log book is very important. I think a stopwatch is very important and music. So that's what I have in my gym bag. Steve, what are your, what's in your gym bag? So, I mean, shoes are really important, guys. I can't stress this enough. Um, I actually um, injured my legs from using poor shoes. So don't go to Walmart and buy like the $12 or $15 shoes and think you're going to be able to run on those. You really need to buy good quality shoes. I like the Nike Freeze. Um, those, um, you can buy those from an outlet store. Um, or you can buy them online and they're only like 40 bucks because you don't buy the ones that just came out. The ones that just came out are like 120, 130 bucks, but the ones that are like a year, like, you know, a year out of, out of being new, um, they're only like 40, 40 bucks, 50 bucks. So they're not expensive. I would use those for running for weight training. You want to use like some good quality shoes. Don't use the same shoes though. If you're doing cardio and doing weight training, because you don't want to wear out your shoes too fast, make sure you store your shoes properly. Don't leave them in your car. Don't put them in your dryer. If they get wet, you just put them out like on, on your patio at an angle and let them dry. Put some newspapers inside them. That's the quick way to dry them. You don't throw them in the dryer to dry. You'll ruin your shoes. And then you fire, actually. Yeah, you need to cycle your shoes as well. You know, like you don't keep the same shoes for a year. Go ahead and donate them. If you're a runner, I don't know, maybe, I mean, if you're a runner, maybe two, three, four, five hundred 500 miles, and then you need to go ahead and buy new shoes because they wore out. So that's very important. Clothes, something very good fitting. I like to have sh uh, shorts with pockets to keep my keys or, or, you know, keep my keys in or whatever I need to carry around. This way that I don't have to leave it in the locker room. I don't like going into locker rooms very much. I think locker rooms are dirty, so... I, but when I go to the gym, I just take my water bottle and my headphones to listen to music. That's all I take. I don't take uh, gloves. I don't take wraps. I don't take belts. I don't take any of that shit. So 
that's that's the way I do it. It's not really that complicated. But just where if you're doing squats and stuff, one thing I can't stand is wedgies. So make sure you don't get those shorts that have those like that that weird fabric. I don't even know why they make that stuff. You're you're the expert, Trevor. Maybe you'll know, but I always get wedgies when I wear those shorts. I like shorts that are just like these they're like $10 Walmart shorts. They're not even anything special, but they don't give me a wedgie. They're like really soft, like made of cotton. And then that's, that's all I need. I'm not, I'm not that picky. I'm, I'm going to say one more thing about shoes. So running shoes are designed to keep the weight in your toes because as a runner, you're trying to propel forward, right? So running shoes, they're designed to keep the weight in your toes. Weightlifting shoes are designed to keep the weight in your heels because when you're squatting, when you're deadlifting, when you're doing things like that, those are glute exercise. Those are glute dominant exercises. So you want to be leaning back into your heels. So you do not want to be squatting in running shoes. You do not want to be running in weight training shoes. So what Steve said is very, very important. Most people listening to this podcast aren't runners. They're just going to be doing, you know, cardio, walking on the treadmill. So you can walk on the treadmill and weightlifting shoes. But if you're both a runner and a weightlifter, get two different sets of shoes. This is very, very important. Otherwise, you're going to get knee pain. I see a lot of people who are squatting in running shoes. They end up blowing out their knees. They end up getting knee pain. They end up getting lower back pain. That's because all the weight is on their toes, so they're not squatting properly, and that's putting all the pressure on their knees. So make sure you have the proper footwear. And if you're a runner, what Trevor said is correct. You don't want to heel, heel strike. You'll get shin splints. you get plantar fasciitis. you get problems with your ankles. So the way you train yourself not to heel strike is run on grass with, with, with no shoes. Run barefoot. That will teach you not to heel strike. So that's that's a little trick you can do. And then once you learn how to run correctly, then you can wear some really, really good quality shoes that don't have huge heels on the back. Next question is intermittent fasting help. When should I work out and eat? So Trevor, you're not really much of an intermittent faster. You said you do it rarely. But um, what's your opinion on this? If you want to go first, and then I'll um, tell you my, what I do. If you're going to intermittent fast, I think the best thing to do would be to work out while you're fasted and then consume your first meal post-workout. Because if you train fasted, you're going to be getting better adrenaline. You're going to be getting better uh, better workout, basically. And that's the whole point of fasting is also fat burning. So if you eat something before your workout, you're going to prevent that fat oxidation. So what I would do is let's say you're going to intermittent fast. I would intermittent fast throughout breakfast and lunch, maybe after work, go for a workout, and then maybe have your first meal around 7 p.m. I think that the post-workout meal is actually more important than the pre-workout meal because the post-workout meal is actually what's going to kickstart the recovery. So if what I do when I intermittent fast is I'll intermittent fast throughout the day, I'll work out around 4 p.m. and then I'll consume my first meal around 6.37. So that would be my recommendation is intermittent fast throughout the day, train, and then eat post-workout. Steve? Okay, so um, it just depends on what you're doing, what your goals are, and it depends also what time you train. For what Trevor said, is perfect, um, but a lot of people can't train in the middle of the day, so that's, that's problematic. So let's say you train in the morning. What you want to do is you can get up, hydrate, make sure you're hydrated, go work out, then you go to work, whatever, and then you eat around 1.00. And then that will basically make sure that you're intermittent fasting. You probably didn't eat from like 9 or 10 p.m. the night before, and you're not eating till 1 the next day. So in between that workout to 1 o'clock, you're not getting any food. But the thing is, guys, like there's no such thing as an anabolic window. So it's not like in that four hours you're not eating anything, your muscles are going to shrink up. That may appear to be the case, guys, but that's just because of – you know, the glycogen in your muscles. Don't forget your muscles are mostly made of water. So your muscles will probably be flat, but that doesn't mean your muscles are shrinking. So don't, don't freak out over that. When I did my 19 day fast, okay. Do you remember what you told me, Trevor? He said, I was like, okay, when should I get pictures? He said, have a Gatorade and or sports drink and then get your pictures um, a couple hours later. Well, the thing about that was, is that you were, you kind of, when it got ahead of the curve a little bit because I didn't fill back up 
until about two or three days later. So I was, my muscles were completely flat for two or three days. It took two or three days of going back to regular eating for muscles to fill back up. So that's, you didn't do it. I said completely, I said, I know, I know, but I'm just giving you an example of it. But it, but if you're intermittent fasting, you can fill back up quicker. So it just depends on like your fasting and what your goals are. Um, let me, let me just say one thing about, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. If anyone's intermittent fasting, they want to look good for a photo shoot or anything like that. Is that when you intermittent fast, you're going to be depleted because you're basically lowering your glycogen levels. If you want to carb back up, consume some simple sugars, like I said, but you also want to be doing some pump ups. So you want to be doing some push ups, some rows, just lightweight because you want to get the blood flow. What the blood flow is going to do is it's going to increase your glycogen storing enzymes. So it's going to shuttle those nutrients into your muscles. Now, what Steve said is true is that if you just consume carbs, eventually those carbs will get into your muscles. But if you want to expedite the process, you'd basically be doing some pump ups and things like that. If you really want to expedite the process, you would carb up, pump up, and also take insulin. Now, I don't recommend taking insulin unless you're a bodybuilder and you're trying to do this for a pre-contest show or anything like that. But that's the reason why bodybuilders before their show will carb deplete, then they'll carb load, backstage they're pumping up, and most of those bodybuilders are also taking insulin while they're carb loading to help shuttle those carbs into their muscles. But that was, that was kind of a different segment. Yeah, yeah, You're like, every, I think 98% of people listening to this is like, we, you know, we're, we just want to know how to, how to intermittent fast. Um, so First, like back Intermittent fasting, people are overcomplicating this. Intermittent fasting, you want to condense your eating window to four hours. Now, that whole anabolic window thing, that's bullshit. You have an amino acid pool. If you're doing, you know, a four or five day fast, then you get worried. Then you actually do have to worry about your amino acids because your amino acid pool will be depleted. But if you're intermittent fasting, that whole anabolic window, that doesn't really matter because you're still going to have amino acids in your amino acid pool, and you're going to eventually replenish that amino acid pool when you do eat. So don't overthink this stuff, guys. If you want to intermittent fast, condense your eating hour, eating window to four hours and eat whenever best fits your schedule. If you prefer to eat earlier in the day and then not eat before bed, do that. If you prefer not to eat during the day and eat closer to bed, do that. Um, just whenever best fits your schedule. I mean, like if both of you and your wife work during the day and you want to have dinner together, then fast throughout the day and eat at night. If you have, you know, breakfast and lunch meetings at work, eat during the morning and then fast at night. Like don't overthink this stuff. Yeah, I'll say this. Um, you know, if you want to work out in the evening, then make it simple. Just have your 1 p.m. meal, but go high protein with your 1 p.m. meal. Um, like maybe like a chicken breast and a salad. Okay. And then have your workout at five o'clock after work or five 30, when everyone goes to the gym and then after your workout, come home and then have a high fat, a higher fat meal, you know, maybe, um, a high a fatty, fatty burger with, um, with some avocado, something like that. And some raw nuts, that'd be perfect. So those are two options. Um, you know, but the best option was what Trevor said. And that's something that I try to do as much as possible is, is fast and intermittent fast until about one or two o'clock. But I work out midday, get in a nice workout, and then I'll break the fast after. And that's, that's the best way to do it. But it doesn't fit, always fit our schedule. So hopefully this makes sense um, and that can help you. One more thing about intermittent fasting is that intermittent fasting is not a diet. It's an eating plan. You don't need to intermittent fast every single day. So let's say only Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, doing that timeline Steve recommended where fasting throughout the day, working out around 3 p.m. and then having dinner. That only works Monday, Wednesday, Friday. You don't need to intermittent fast every single day. I recommend intermittent fasting to some of my clients because I think it's a really good way to restrict calories. A lot of these people, they have kids, they have you know a wife. They really want to have breakfast with their family Saturday morning. Some people like to go for brunch after church Sunday morning. I'll tell them intermittent fast Monday to Friday and then on the weekend, go back to your regular eating pattern. You don't have to intermittent fast seven days a week. So that's a big misconception I see people see. Next one is Power PCT. He wants to know, he read about a Power PCT online. It's a bunch of CIRMs, an AI, an HCG thrown in together, high dosages. And he says, does this really help restart my HPTA after a steroid cycle? I guess he's saying he's failed to, um, he's having a hard time basically bouncing back from, from, from cycling. And he wants to know if this really works. So Trevor, you know, you have firsthand experience of this. Can you just throw a bunch of drugs at the issue 
and magically restart your, your HPTA? Did it work for you? Okay. So again, this is kind of the light switch versus dimmer switch analogy is that you can't restart. It's not like you flick on, it's not like you run a PCT and then, okay, I'm recovered. Like a PCT helps your body slowly start its natural testosterone production again. It's not recovery doesn't happen overnight. Even with a perfect PCT recovery is still going to take weeks and months. So no, you can't just take a bunch of drugs and be like, okay, I'm healed. And that's the problem with our society is we want a drug for everything. You know, like if you're stressed, Oh, what, what can I take? You know, instead of addressing your sleep, your diet, your exercise and like that is like, Oh, let me just take some drugs. So no, you can't just take a bunch of drugs and hope your HPTA is going to be repaired. In fact, too much serms, too much Clomid and Novodex can cause a lot of side effects, especially Clomid. Super high dosages of Clomid can cause anxiety, can cause depression. I've seen people getting breakouts from it. I would never, under any circumstances, use more than 50 milligrams of Clomid per day. Even then, 25 milligrams per day is plenty. Um, HCG, HCG mimics LH and FSH. Now, the problem with HCG is that when you're using it, it's going to make your testicles bigger. It's basically going to make your testicles plump and full because it sends a signal to your testicles. It basically mimics LH and FSH, which tell your testicles to make testosterone. The problem is that HCG is suppressive. So you basically are shooting yourself in the foot. And I see this happen over and over again, is that people are taking HCG, it mimics LH and FSH, which tells your testicles to make testosterone. So they take HCG, their testosterone are nice and full and plump. They're like, oh, great, I'm recovered. I got endless libido. My testosterone levels are good. I just got my blood work done. Then they stop taking the HCG because HCG is suppressive. Their LH and FSH are even lower than it was before. And their testicles get more atrophy than they were before. And their testosterone goes even lower than it was before. So I do not like HCG in a PCT. If you want to use HCG on cycle, that's fine. But you never want to use HCG in a PCT. Steve, do you want to talk about what to actually do for a PCT? Yeah, I mean, you pretty much, you know, covered everything, guys. But the bottom line is the point of a PCT, guys, is to prevent a hard landing. So when you come off steroids, those esters are ticking out of your system. They're estering out, okay? So once they're lower, getting lower and lower and lower, you don't want to crash. It's going to feel horrible. You're not going to want to work out. You're going to get depressed. Everything's going to hit the fan. So PCT is kind of a, a, it's like having a parachute jumping out of an airplane. <laughs> it prevents you from having a very, very hard landing. So you have a soft landing. So the only way you recover your HPTA health and get your pituitary glands spitting out hormones again is not by throwing drugs at it. It's actually by not doing anything, by letting it recover. So the way it works is you come off the steroids, you run your PCT, okay, which involve the CIRMs. It may involve an AI, but that may not be necessary. It just depends on the cycle you're in and how your blood work is. And then you're going to run a natural testosterone booster. I like N2 Generate. It's natural. It's going to offset any of the side effects that come with the CIRMs, the Clomid, the Novodex. And then you're going to have a soft landing. Are you going to feel as good during your PCT as you did on cycle? Of course not but at least you're not gonna crash completely. And then over time, your HPTA starts to slowly recover on its own. But by throwing drugs at the problem, like these power PCT thing, the person who came up with that is, a, is an idiot, all right? It doesn't work because if it did work, no one would be on TRT for life, would they? So it's, it's just, the, that's not the way it works, guys. Only your own body can recover itself. So treat your HPTA like a fragile flower okay don't destroy it and you can have a strong hpta for a long long time well let me say one more thing and then you can list the next question steve is that i see a lot of people bash natural testosterone boosters and for full disclosure most of the stuff you get at like a gnc or a muscle tech or shit so i agree with that but there are some very effective natural testosterone boosters on the market and if you look at the ingredients things like fenugreek things like tribulus they are used in traditional Chinese medicine. They do help boost testosterone levels. Now, again, this isn't going to be something like gears. So don't take a natural testosterone booster, expecting it to be like a cycle of tests. But I think they really do have an application of post-cycle therapy where you're trying to replenish your HPTA. And the nice thing about a natural testosterone booster is it'll stimulate the late egg cells to increase LH and FSH, but they're not suppressive. So it's basically going to be like a less effective form of HCG 
but it's not suppressive. So it's not going to work as good as HCG, but you're not getting any of the side effects. So I do like them. I also like the SARMs, Osterin and Cardarin in a PCT. Osterin, because it'll help prevent muscle loss. In a PCT, you're in a very catabolic situation. Your hormones are low. Your body is basically just went through a hormonal roller coaster. So I like Osterin to prevent muscle loss. And I also like Cardarin, because Cardarin will prevent fat gain. And Cardarin also lowers cortisol levels. So that's kind of what I like to do for a PCT. Steve, do you want to list the next question? Yeah, we don't have much time left, guys. So we're going to run the hurry-up offense, a two-minute offense in these last two questions. Really quick, he wants to know, he says, I don't understand how to stack anabolic steroids. Can you, um, really quick, Trevor, what's a, what's a cookie-cutter way to kind of stack steroids that will, will usually work off the top okay. of your head? For muscle gain, there are three classes of anabolic steroids. There are testosterone and testosterone derivatives. You have nandrolones and nandrolone derivatives and then DHT derivatives. So in order to get the fastest muscle growth, I would stack one from each category. A simple example would be you could do testosterone, which is obviously from the testosterone testosterone derivatives. For nandrolones, you could do DECA. And then for a DHT, you could do Primo. Um, if you're looking to gain muscle, I would do a low dose of test, high DECA, high Primo. That's going to give you nice, clean gains because DECA doesn't aromatize into estrogen that much. Primo doesn't aromatize into estrogen at all. Testosterone does aromatize into estrogen, but if you have a low dose of testosterone, you're not going to get much test flow. So that's what I would do. Um, that's basically steroid stacking 101. There's really no right or wrong way to stack steroids. It just comes from goals, personal experience, um, budget, but yeah, that's, that's a, that's a question that we could spend an hour answering. What are your thoughts, Steve? I mean, really quick guys. I like to, um, I don't like to stack more than one androgenic or estrogenic compound in one cycle because I don't like that. I like to use steroids as icing that cake. I don't use steroids to compensate for other issues. So, you know, using too much estrogenic steroids is going to cause too much water retention. Using too many androgenic steroids are going to cause too much side effects, you know? So I like to use one mild compound and one androgenic compound together. So we're going to talk about that in future podcasts. So if you have a question on, on this, but we'll talk about some stacks that we like in the future podcast, but that kind of sums it up. So try to avoid stacking more than one androgen and try to avoid stacking one more than one estrogenic compound and definitely don't stack three, three of, of either. That would be, that would be pretty, pretty nuts. <laughs> Last question, really quick, Trevor, lightning round, keep it to under a minute, counting macros apps to use. Most of us are eating the same foods every day. So what I would do is pers what I personally do is I just look at the nutrition labels on those foods and then enter it to Excel. Um, I'm very old school. I use Excel through all my engineering degrees. So I really like Excel. If you're not an Excel user, you could get my fitness pal. The problem with my fitness pal is people can upload their own foods. And I find a lot of people are uploading foods with the incorrect macros. So if you're using my fitness pal and you're looking for a food, let's say you're looking for oatmeal, Make sure you're looking at a food that has a check beside it, and that means it's verified. That means MyFitnessPal has actually went to the grocery store and verified that that nutrition facts panel is correct. So MyFitnessPal is good because of that check mark. So just make sure if you're looking for oatmeal, egg whites, or whatever, make sure that the food you enter from MyFitnessPal has a check mark beside it. Steve, what are your thoughts? The problem with the apps is it's impossible to really know exactly how much of these macros you're getting because a lot of foods are, I think there's some law, there's the loophole is they can be off by like 20% or some crazy number. So it's really hard to know. That's all the quality of food makes a difference. So I, I tell all my clients who are looking to lose weight, delete the app. Don't use those apps. Just eat clean foods. Focus on eating clean foods. Focus on looking at the ingredients. Trevor, Trevor said it exactly. Look at the ingredients instead of worrying about the macros. Because if you start worrying about the macros, you'll end up doing this whole, if it fits, if it's fit your macros bullshit. And that does not work, okay? That may work initially, but it does not work long-term because you cannot eat two donuts, okay, for as, as your meal and, and two diet sodas and think that you are getting the same amount of nutrition as you are eating um, a, a cup of raw nuts and an avocado, even though they're the same calories. And you can say, oh my gosh, you know, the fat content, the calorie content, the carbs, 
wow, these are the same, but they're not. You put it in your body, your body has a different reaction to both. So the obesity and the type 2 diabetes epidemic in this country is thanks to the whole if it fats your macros thing. It's like that people can feel like, oh, yeah, it's okay if I eat pizza every day because it's fitting my macros. So that's the wrong approach to this guy. So I tell all my clients who are overweight, don't follow these macro, these stupid counting your macros, counting your calorie apps. It, they do more harm than good. So I wouldn't use them at all. But if you're in Trevor's situation where you bodybuild and you want to know what's going in your body and you're obsessed with it, then yeah, it's a great option for you. So it just depends on your situation. You're, you're going to like this, Steve. So I was on a podcast last week and uh, it was an interview podcast and it was basically me debating some guy who believes if it fits your macros. And he said, Trevor, I thought you were an engineer. Calories in versus calories out. That's a law of thermodynamics. And I said, yes, that's correct. Do you know the difference between an open and closed system? And he said, what's that? I said, okay, so in a closed system, calories in versus calories out works. The problem is the human body is not a closed system. It's an open system, which basically means calories in affects calories out because calories are more than just calories. Food is information. What you eat, there's the thermic effect of food. It's how it affects your hormones. There's also how much of those calories you actually absorb. For example, fiber, if you don't absorb all the carbohydrates and fiber, different fats have different functions in the body. You know, certain fats will be used to make enzymes, be used to be the hormones. Certain fats will actually be used to be stored. So that whole calories in versus calories out, if anyone tells you that's a law of thermodynamics, that is incorrect. That is true for a closed system, but the human body is an open system. So I thought you'd like that scientific explanation of why if it fits your macros is stupid. Um, what I do like about if it fits your macros is that, you know, if you want to eat some pizza, be mindful of how many calories that pizza has. So don't go ape shit and eat the whole pizza. Go, okay, a slice of pizza has around 250 calories. If I eat two pieces, that's going to be about 500 calories. I'm not going to blow my total diet. So I think if it fits your macros has some merit in just understanding how many calories foods have, learning portion sizes, but the whole a calories of calories, that makes no sense. These were 10 really good questions. If you guys have questions for further podcasts, you can send me a DM on Instagram or you can send me an email. I will have both of those in the show notes. If you send me an email, just please put in the email subject, question for Evo Radio Podcast. Um, last question for you, Steve, because I'm going to a Super Bowl party tomorrow, who should I be rooting for? Because I don't know anything about the Super Bowl. Um, I mean, you'd be crazy not to think that the Patriots would win because they have Tom Brady. And, you know, so it'd be insane not to pick the Patriots to win. So, but I'm not rooting for anybody. Um, I think it's going to be a good game, probably a high scoring game. And it's going to be a close game. I, unless one team completely screws up and starts turning it over, it's probably going to be a really close game. It's going to come down to the end. And if it comes down to the end, you know that it's going to be Tom Brady. Like he's the one you want with the ball. So you'd be crazy to bet against Tom Brady. But hopefully it's a good game and, um, you know, have fun, you know. So another episode of Evolutionary Radio for your host, Trevor Kuritsen, and for my co-host, Steve Smith. Live your life, look good doing it. Thanks for listening. Hey.